Rough year for your favorite NFL team? Join me, Danny Heifetz, along with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Craig Krolbeck on the Ringer NFL Draft Show, where we talk about all things NFL Draft, and more importantly, how to fix your mediocre team. Check out the Ringer NFL Draft Show every Tuesday and Thursday. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Monday, February 27th. The past 15 years have seen a gigantic shift in how film and television is made and consumed. But it's been a period of relative quiet and complacency among the unions that represent the people who make those films and TV shows. There hasn't been a major above-the-line strike since 2007, when the Writers Guild shut down Hollywood for 100 days and caused an estimated $3 billion in damage to the entertainment economy. All over what the writers then called, quote, new media, meaning the internet. That period of quiet could end very loudly in the next couple months. You talk to people around Hollywood, and one of the first questions they ask is, so, you think there's going to be a writer's strike? My answer is always yes, but I have no idea for sure. Last week, the writers set a March 20th date to begin negotiating a new contract. And to say the writers and studios don't see eye to eye would be a vast understatement. The writers are pissed. The streaming services have totally changed the economics of television, but the deals haven't caught up. 22-episode seasons are now 10 Eight, sometimes even six episodes. Backends are bought out. Residuals have shrunk because the formula for streaming gives writers less than the traditional network model. Shows are rerun less. There's less syndication. All the pinnacles that used to give writers a quality middle-class life are a challenge at this point. Writers are working more, but making less money. And on the other side, the studios are facing some pretty dire economics after the great Netflix correction and a period of exponential growth. The last thing they want to do right now is pay their talent more. It's all going to come to a head in the next couple months, with the writers, the most volatile of the three major guilds, negotiating first, followed by the directors and actors. So today we've got our normal Monday morning guy, Lucas Shaw, here, to talk about what the writers want, how likely they are to get it, will there be a strike, and if so, how it might all play out. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw, and we are going to talk something pretty controversial. Anytime we bring up this subject, we're bound to get uh, haters on both sides that say we are in the tank for the writers, we are in the tank for the studios, uh, we are in the tank for nobody. Am I right, Lucas? Uh, I'm in the tank for uh, for good story, uh, both for me to write about and for me to watch on screen, so I would prefer that there not be a strike. Uh, or at least as a as a television viewer, but as a journalist, uh, a strike would be kind of fun. That's true. If anything, if any bias we have, it's that we don't want to strike. But we see both sides, and we're going to discuss. And we'll also have have this topic back on the show um, as we get closer to the May first deadline for the writers who are now 
negotiating or about to negotiate a new deal. And the conventional wisdom, I think, in the industry is that there will likely be a strike on May 1st or shortly thereafter. The two sides are so far apart. The industry has changed so much since the last strike 15 years ago. And the writers really feel that they have been left behind in the new economics of particularly streaming television. You agree there? Yeah, well, first off, I'm sure this is true for you as well. It comes up in 80% of the conversations I have with people. You know, it's not necessarily the main subject of conversation, but it will invariably come up in a conversation with just about any executive in the entertainment business right now. Um, yeah, they're like, I'm, oh, is there going to be a strike? As if I have, you know, David Goodman <laughs> on speed dial being like, oh, wait, oh, today you're striking? Tomorrow you're not? No. Yeah. I mean, I believe there will be just because of the external objective metrics here. But I'm not talking to the, I'm not talking to David Goodman every day about this. Like, uh, who knows? And I don't even think he knows. I mean, to, to your point about the, the differences from 07, 08, which was the last time there was a big work stoppage, I believe it was 100 days. Um, you know, the internet was a brand new concept to Hollywood at the time. You know, one of the things that they fought for was that they got paid for internet video at all, right? And now now that's the main contention is how much do they get paid when videos get streamed online? Um, And it ties into so many other big themes that that we talk about regularly that other people think about um, because whether how much we know about viewership of streaming shows factors in how much talent get paid for streaming whether there's you know a a first window or a second window for for different projects it's it's all part of this fight um although the the main subjects uh, end up being sort of these very wonky things uh, right so with- so let's let's go into what the writers actually want because we've been able to discern the demands that they are likely going to make when these negotiations start. First, they want higher wages, you know, pretty basic. The guilds set the minimums. So if you understand here, the guilds set the minimums of what you can pay writers. You have an agent typically that will negotiate more than what the minimums are, but they want to set the floor as high as they can. And the fact of the matter is inflation has been out of control for the last couple of years. And typically in these deals that come up every three years, they get a 3% raise. A 3% raise is not keeping up with cost of living these days. So they want wage increases at the minimum that are more in line with what inflation is. They want to end or they want to have more control over the practice of mini rooms, which is a writer's concept for, if you have a writer's room, typically on a show, the writers will break the story and you will get as a writer to write a couple episodes of a season, and then you will have a path to getting more experience and becoming a producer and then eventually a showrunner. What goes on now often in these shorter episode series especially is there is a mini room at the beginning of the season where the writers are hired to break all the stories and come up with what the show is going to be, and then they essentially hand off the show to a couple experienced showrunners who then take it from there. and. The mini room is not ideal for writers because you're typically not being paid episodic writing fees. You're being paid just to do the mini room. And you don't have this path to getting more experience to eventually growing and becoming a showrunner yourself. So the guild wants more control over that and how those mini rooms operate. Um, The other one is residuals. The formula for setting residuals is bonkers, in my opinion. 
I mean, it's based on very antiquated. I, I, do you do you think most people know what a residual is? No, residuals are the the money you get paid when your work is reused. So you know, it used to be if you wrote on Cheers or Seinfeld, and then they ran reruns in the summer, or they syndicated it, or they put it on you know uh, Bulgarian television, whatever. You would get paid residuals. A lot of writers still get huge checks from residuals old shows they did. Residuals in streaming are calculated in a very different way than residuals for television, traditional television. And it's based on this formula, not on how well the show did, it's based on how many subscribers the service has and only in the US. And that is so antiquated when you think that the priorities of all these streaming services now are to grow globally. And when you think that someone is who is a writer on like a gigantic show like Wednesday on Netflix, that writer gets the same residuals as someone who is on a one-off, one-season-and-canceled show. So the residuals formula is super screwed up, and the writers want to change that. There's also some other smaller issues. They want to eliminate the, the amount of free work that they do. A lot of times in pitches, you have to do a bunch of free work in order to get the project greenlit. They want governance over that. And How do you think... How do you think the popularity of, of Wednesday compares to a one-off in Bulgarian television? Uh, I don't know. My, my Bulgarian Nielsen ratings are delayed this week. I do not know. Uh, but, okay. but they want governance over free work, and they want to eliminate some of the more onerous exclusivity clauses. For instance, if you are um, you know, a writer on a show that may have eight or ten episodes, but the contract holds you for six months or eight months or even a year, that's not great for the writer because you can't go out and get other work. And they want to have more, more control over that. So those are the basic issues that the writers want. Lucas, do you want, Lucas, do you want to do the, uh, the studio position here? Well, the, the studio position is that they're still trying to figure out the, the economics of streaming themselves, right? I yeah, mean, and they're not doing a great <laughs> job at it. <laughs> so if all these companies are losing billions of dollars on streaming services, trying to figure out how to better compensate writers is, is just not the top priority. They have to figure out how to, how to build these things into profitable businesses. And once they do that, they can sort out some of the later de lab labor deals. Um, they would also just note, you know, it's a, it's a different business model and they're still trying to figure out... Um, you know how how everyone should be compensated, right? You know there there are very few shows in the streaming world that have gotten to the point of residuals. Uh, it's not like I, I don't think, and I I could be wrong that some of the decisions they're making around, uh, you know, how long seasons last or or mini rooms or things like that. It's not like they're specifically trying to screw over the writer. They're trying to sort of make the best show and make it most economically they can. And of course their interests are not always aligned uh, with, with the people they're working with. The model in streaming is that you get the most bang for your buck and subscriber retention and, and with new with new. And if you can do three, eight episode shows for the same price as a 24 episode sitcom or show that was typically the norm in the broadcast era, then they're going to do that. And the writers are going to be, you know, the last thing they think about when they're thinking about how to, uh, to budget that out. Uh, but the writers say they should be more of a forefront thinking here. And uh, I, I don't disagree with them. I mean, I mean, there's some things that the writers want that just seem sort of obvious, right? Like if you're going to, if you're going to make 
seasons with a lot fewer shows. You know, if the average is now eight to 10 instead of 20 to 24, you shouldn't have a writer locked up for as long as you used to, even if yep. it takes just as long to develop it, or they should be free to work on multiple projects. Agents have been able to knock that out in many cases. And there are rules now on how long you can control a writer for writing one episode. Like it was the kind of thing where there would be a, an eight episode show and writers will be working on an episode for like months at a time that <laughs> they have limits on that. I believe it's two and a half weeks on how long you can keep a, you have a writer for an episode. But, you know, but these are, are largely things that, uh, you know, that have come out of previous negotiations. And the problem is here is that the last negotiation window in 2020 coincided with the worst of the COVID shutdown. So they basically punted all of these issues in 2020 at the time of a huge run-up in the streaming economy, the peak, peak TV. And now we're hitting these negotiation windows at a time when everybody is pulling back and trying to save money and trying to be more judicious about the, the kinds of shows and the content spent. So it's, it's almost like this is a perfect storm for a writer's strike. Well, that's why I, I worry that even though the writers have a lot of good points, that they are overestimating their leverage right now. Oh, interesting. So, okay, so go into that more. So the, the writers, for those who haven't been following, which I really hope you haven't, the writers got in this big fight with the talent agencies a few years ago over something called packaging, right? Where pa talent agencies would put together different pieces of a project, a writer, a director, an actor for a TV show. And instead of taking commission from all of those different individuals, they basically take a share of the profits from the show. And this has been very lucrative for talent agencies. And writers decided that it meant that uh, you know, agencies weren't acting in their interests because they were acting in their own interests. Um, yeah, in, in many cases, not many, in some isolated cases, the agency would make more money on a show than the writer who created it. And they didn't like that. They had this long deal stalemate and they basically won, right? The agencies gave up packaging um, that that meant, but the downside to this, and because there are some writers who, in retrospect, don't actually think that was in their best interest. Many writers don't. They're now paying commissions. Yeah, for for one, a lot of writers lost representation because the agencies took that as an opportunity to basically cull underperforming people who they didn't want on their books anymore. For another, to your point, most writers are not, or a lot of writers are not involved in a way where packaging hurts them that much, right? Or for the writers at the very top, at least, I should say, they're now having to pay fees in a way that they did not before. Um, and the whole notion of a home run show, the Big Bang Theory or Modern Family, that is a broadcast hit and is syndicated forever and you have a back-end participation, that whole model is sort of disappearing where you're seeing a lot more d singles and doubles and very, very few home runs. And the home runs were the situations that the agency ended up making more money. Right. And and packaging is less of a big deal in entertainment for the same reason that, by the way, writers don't get the same residuals from streaming, right? Because that profit pool at the end isn't what it used to be. But coming out of that agency fight, the writers feel emboldened, right? They're like, we, you know, we had a showdown with the biggest, baddest negotiators in town. If we could win against them, we can definitely win against these studios. The, the problem is, is one, as we've just discussed, there's some dissension within the writers group as to whether that agency fight was effective. And so, yes, there may be some sort of, the, the writers are very good at 
kind of mobilizing and and unifying and gathering around an issue. But there's going to be some dissenting voices who don't think a strike is in the best interest, especially given the economic picture. The other is that the studios, even though they don't want a strike, would probably be okay if they didn't have to pay writers or spend a bunch of money for a month or two because it would make their numbers look great. They're under all this pressure to be more profitable. And if all of a sudden they have to you know, stop paying people for a couple of months, not so bad for them because for the most part... They have, it's different for the broadcast networks, but for the streaming services, they have their shows ready months in advance. So you wouldn't actually feel the impact of a strike for, you know, 12 months, 15 months, something like that. And those streamers have a lot of international shows that they could slot in that are not governed by the WGA. Uh, so they, they do have a backup. And plus, Unscripted is not governed by the WGA. Animation not governed by the WGA. Although there's, there's some question on animation or whether yeah. some people would strike in solidarity. The, that question has come up a lot when I talk to people is, do the studios actually want a strike? Would they like the opportunity to use force majeure clauses to get rid of some of these very expensive overall deals with top writers that maybe haven't turned out like they thought they might? And essentially take writing costs off the books, as you said, for a couple months to pad their numbers. Do you think there is a momentum there for the studios to just say, yeah, whatever, do what you want. We'll, we'll see you in September. I don't think they want a strike. You know, yeah, they, I don't they, either. I, I think that's very short-sighted, but go ahead. There are, there are a whole bunch of reasons why they would like business to continue as normal. I just don't think that the fear of a strike is as great as it was... To, you know, a couple of years ago when they're all in scale-up mode, right? Where they all are trying to increase their output by a lot. They all need to show subscriber growth. They're all, they're just in a different frame of mind than they are right now. I mean, look at what happened during the COVID shutdowns during the beginning of the pandemic, where you had services like HBO Max and Peacock and the others that were literally just launching and their ability to put on new shows was impacted by this shutdown. We're not in that mode anymore. But- a strike that goes on more than a couple months, you will start to see a, a, a you know impact on the kinds of things that they can put out. Yeah, no question. I mean, much as they want to to stress profitability, subscriber growth still matters, obviously, and so they they don't want a prolonged strike. Um, I just don't know. You know, you you use the phrase "perfect storm," which is sort of anathema to me. I have to admit, but it's 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 apt here because. You have two sides that feel very entrenched and emboldened. Um, and who is going to be the one who, where, or what is going to cause cooler heads to prevail and kind of make them come together and see that there are some some very real issues um, that that they should be able to resolve. This does not feel to me like something that requires going to the mattresses. We'll see the, you know, there's also no, industry statesman type that could step in like a Lou Wasserman or people in the past. I mean, I guess there's Bob Iger at Disney who is now back in that chair and could broker some kind of peace. Fill me in. Cause I, I will admit I was in college for the 0708 writer strike. Mm -hmm. How did, who was the statesman or what was the call? What was the thing that ended it? There was a growing sense after it went into, you know, the new year after the holidays that the damage being caused was so significant. Ultimately, the estimates were about $3 billion in damage to the entertainment economy, and people were really hurting. I think the guys who ultimately were instrumental were Peter Chernin, 
who at the time I believe was still at Fox and had had was one of these you know statesman types. Um, Ken Ziffrin, who's a, a lawyer and a labor expert and has been around and you know he was there for the strikes in the '80s and he was able to get both sides to the table. Also, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, was pretty involved, and there were some others as well. Um, but I think the real impetus for negotiating that settlement was the damage that had been done, not necessarily any you know magic sauce that one of these guys came up with. People were really, really frustrated and hurting, and it was causing significant damage to the industry. And I wonder if we're going to have to get to that point in this impasse to really see some change. And and that strike was seen. I mean, the re- reality TV was was a, was of course a big deal before then. You had Survivor and American Idol and the real no, world. No, but it's supercharged. But I, that. yeah, that, yeah, that's what I, that led to this an, an absolute explosion in reality, right? Absolutely. And a lot of those shows that were tested because of writer strike stuff ended up becoming hits. And we saw that whole era of Jersey Shore and you know Pawn Stars and uh, you know American Truck, all the reality TV that fueled the cable universe in the twenty. 20- 10s a lot of that um was the seeds were sown during that strike and a lot of very lucrative talent deals were scrapped during that strike the studios did use it as an opportunity to you know trim the herd and save money and it, it got bad for a lot of people um all right so practically speaking here how do you think a strike would impact the industry, and ultimately down to what people see, both on a short-term and a long-term basis. Well, you you just talked about some of it, which is that I think you uh, for for people who work in the industry, I think you'd see a lot of a lot of deals canceled, um, and a lot of uh, studios using it as an opportunity to sort of clean up their books. You'd also likely see. Um, a, a, an increase in investment in areas that are not, you know, union supported. So you'd see more international shows, more reality is already pretty big, but Netflix has done way more in streaming reality than some of its peers. So I think you'd probably see real investments in both of those for the average, for the average viewer. Um, you know, they don't feel it. Like we said, we don't, they don't feel it for a bit. Right. You know, well, I don't they think would if their favorite show doesn't come back. What, what they would feel is, in the fall, it affects it would affect broadcast because broadcast doesn't film things as far out as streaming. And so whatever yeah, the next four of La Brea, I'm sad to report, will not be on time. Hey, look, those story. people who are loving Night Court, you're not gonna get whatever Night Court is in the fall. Or although they a, are they're stocking up this spring. A lot of shows are yeah. doing more episodes or getting more scripts or whatever. But yes, go ahead. Um, so you you won't see as much of the new broadcast in the fall. And then at a certain point next year, you would you would probably see a dip uh, in in new product. Honestly, kind of like we're we're experiencing right now. I don't know if you feel it, but January February of twenty twenty three very weak for new programming. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And but what? Why is that? I mean, I thought I felt like we kind of got out of the COVID slump. I I don't have an explanation for it. It just doesn't feel like there's a lot to watch. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. 
Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. How do you see it playing out? Like, what are you going to have Ari Emanuel going on uh, on on CNN lambasting his clients? Are you going to have Bob no, Iger? no, no, no? I, I I think this time around it will be different from the 0708 strike in the sense that the studios have more options. Like you said, they have more options to fill. And they have, you know, they're they're in a place right now where they are trying to thin their product and they will have an excuse to do so for the short term. Now, if this, if this goes longer than a couple months, then you get into, okay, well, are we going to have a new season of The Last of Us? Are we going to have a new season of Euphoria? What is HBO if they don't have a new show every quarter? Then they get into tougher conversations about that kind of stuff. Um, but in the short term, I think these studios are better prepared for a strike. What about actors and directors whose contract expires in late June? So that's an interesting question. There are a couple of different scenarios that could play out if the writers don't make a deal. A, they could continue to negotiate past the deadline, and the other guilds could just sort of sit and wait and figure out you know what's going to happen before they decide to go negotiate and just kind of keep going beyond their expiration date and act like they're you know business as usual second if the writers do go on strike the other guilds can continue to negotiate and not go on strike themselves that actually happened back in 2007 2008 where the directors guild continued to negotiate even though the writers were striking and then there's a third scenario in which the writers are on strike the DGA and the SAG-AFTRA, they can decide to also strike, and then the whole town shuts down. Let, let's say the writers strike and the actors and directors don't. There's this whole concept of like stockpiling scripts where you you get the, the, the writing in so you can then go shoot it whether there's a strike or not. How, how realistic is that at a time where it feels like you know, they're constantly tweaking during production in television. A lot of oftentimes the writer is also the producer or showrunner. Yeah, or person that's in where charge. it's dicey, where the writer is also the producer. Because I, I, I mean, during the last strike, they absolutely did pencils up. We are not writing. The famous example was the second Daniel Craig Bond movie, Quantum of Solace, that Terrible was movie. rushed and rushed and rushed to make it before the strike. And if you watch that movie, it's pretty thin. It is a bare bones story and it probably could have benefited from some additional writing and it didn't get it. So I do think that it will be right now. Writers obviously will be writing on their own and doing their own projects, but officially I do think the writers will honor that strike and not write. So you're going to come out of the strike with, with your first movie script. Absolutely. It's going to be a bond sequel. That's going to blow everyone out of the water. Well, that, 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 that means you'll be the first person to know who the new James Bond is. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm hiring you. You're the new James Bond, although you're not British. All right, that's it. We'll cover this topic more. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, before we get to my prediction, did you see the results of the Twitter poll you put up on whose team 
is likely to win in the box office draft? Yeah, a narrow victory on your part. If you didn't listen, last week, Lucas and I did a box office draft and 55% to 45%, the people think that I'm going to win. Yeah, not bad. I mean, Lucas gave you a gift in Oppenheimer, which everybody thought was a huge mistake. That is, especially, it's not quite his fault that Marvel's is now out of the summer, which gives Barbie and Oppenheimer, two of my movies, a bigger runway after they are, uh, after they're out. But it's still a huge mistake that neither of us picked Marvel's. We should, one of us should have picked it. And a huge mistake. Neither of you saddled the other one with Wonka. Wonka. I know. We'll see. Watch. <laughs> It'll be the biggest hit of the year. And yeah, we'll be well. laughing about this. Um, all right. So today I want to talk about Yellowstone. And that is one of my favorite subjects because it's a fascinating window into kind of the whole streaming and, and television economy right now. I did a piece for Puck last week on the standoff, essentially, that they're in right now with Kevin Costner. He's not giving them enough shooting dates to finish the fifth season. He is extraordinarily well-paid on that show. It makes $1.2 million an episode. But he is, cares much more about directing movies, and he's got this Western franchise that he has set up at Warner Brothers where he is trying to direct those movies in the summers and not do Yellowstone. And they are going to move on. Every indication is that they are going to move on and have Yellowstone come to an end this season and then start a new show next season. And my prediction is that the rumors about Matthew McConaughey starring in that show are true and that he will close a deal and star in the next iteration of Yellowstone without Kevin Costner. Yellowstone 2, Texas. Texas. Yeah, no, I mean, listen... They may move the show to Texas. He may go to Montana as like a Texas guy who goes there. Who knows what will happen? I know this means nothing to you because you do not follow Yellowstone because you are under 40 years old. I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends who still watch Yellowstone, but really? I, I watched the, I do. I watched the pilot and then I was like, you know what? I don't have, I don't want to spend 20% of my life watching all of the Yellowstone universe shows. Yeah. It's too it, much. It, uh, I, I do watch. I watch the spinoffs. I watch the prequels. I, I, it is a guilty pleasure. Um, people love it. It's the number one show on TV, which is what makes all this stuff even more uh, hilarious that they can't get along and just make it a TV show. So do you think that the other cast, the non-Costner cast of Yellowstone, are they going to kind of pivot to this new McConaughey show or do you think they're all done? Yeah, the rumor is some will. Uh, they, you know, the cast is so fed up with Costner and his time and his ego and the whole thing. And, you know, the studio is siding with Taylor Sheridan, the creator here, because that's where their money is. This guy is a machine. He's pumping out like eight or nine shows for them. And if he's not getting along with Kevin Costner, then they're going to side with the guy who's their meal ticket, not the you know aging movie star that was very good on the show. And I watched it because of him. And I think they will lose something not having Kevin Costner on that show. But Matthew McConaughey is pretty good too. I don't know. Maybe there's going to be a Kevin Costner strike among Yellowstone fans. Uh, maybe, but I feel like they've, you know, they've watched the spinoffs and those don't have Costner. And McConaughey's a good replacement. You know, he's, uh, he's, he's got it going on. I'll watch that show for sure. All right, that's it for today. I want to thank Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. 